Hello and welcome to The Last Edit, a weekly film podcast with my good friend Silver Hawkins and myself Citizen Sleeve, where we choose a film one week and then discuss it the following. Uh, this week has been my choice, following off from our kind of beginning of the gangster thing with Bugsy Malone, and I chose a 1939 film by Raoul Walsh called The Roaring Twenties. Go through a little quick uh, plot synopsis. So James Cagney, the the wonderful eponymous James Cagney, plays Eddie Bartlett, a World War One soldier who uh, is deemed as kind of a, a hero over there. Comes back to uh, to America and finds that there's no work anywhere. He goes back to the, the garage, he used to work out looking for a job, and he's told there's, there's nothing for him there. He goes and queues up uh, and waits for opportunities that never materialise. He then gets, this, this kind of little event happens where he's asked to deliver something to somebody, and it turns out to be alcohol. And of course, this is just at the point in America when prohibition is enacted and in full force, literally just. So he's arrested. Now, along with that whole situation, he, he meets um, Panama Smith, uh, played by Gladys George. And she's this uh, wonderful nightclub singer in this speakeasy joint. And she bails him out. And from that moment forth, we have the absolute classic rise and fall of the gangster, which we see in many, many films since. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll see it again. So let's leave it there and then talk about the uh, the details and what we thought so what was your overriding thought after watching it for the first time or for one of the first i know uh, i'd seen it before but it was a long time ago i didn't really remember it um as, aside from the ending yeah a very iconic ending you know it's it's funny um it, it it annoys me because i don't really have any real criticism to level at the film but it just did not really do anything for me there's nothing particularly memorable that sticks out about it mm. uh, no like cinematic techniques or, or camera shooting techniques or scenes where they just kind of blew me away it just it's really effective it's well crafted uh well acted for the most part yeah. um but it just did not really stay with me or engage me all that much i think part of it is the fact that i, I just had trouble investing with cagney's character and I mean, I think that's a general issue I have with Cagney in general, in that I often have a hard time seeing beyond Cagney and seeing the character. Because Cagney is one of the most heavily caricatured actors yeah. um, in Hollywood. Uh, so so it becomes difficult for me to really sort of uh, invest in, in the characters that he portrays. And There's not very just few roles James he's played in which are not James Cagney. He's one of those actors who is just James Cagney and whatever he's in. He's, you can't change that that kind of gangster slur tone he uses. You can't change uh, the embodiment of the characters which he has. He, I know I know exactly what you mean. There are some actors like that. You can't look yeah. past who they are. And he's definitely one of those. I think Bogart is actually stronger in this film. He's yeah, got some moments. He's got some moments which are really interesting. At the very, very start, um, they're sat shooting um, um, the enemy. and In World War One, yeah. World One, and I think it's Eddie who says, who's got to be a kid over there of no more than 15. Yeah. And George, um, played by Bogart, just goes, he won't live till 16. And from that moment, you know exactly what George was about as a character. Yeah. You, you know it. It's clear and it's defined. It's got some good performances. You're right. I think most of the performances are good. In fact, uh, I quite like um, uh, it's Danny. 
as the comic relief. Yeah, I thought he was he, actually really effective in that role. Um, I didn't really find him all that. Cu- I just found him sort of adorable. Um, <laughs> yeah, he wasn't. He wasn't a funny. Really, in your really sweet. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so Cagney then after the war, after this initial brush with prohibition, decides this is the way to make money. It's the only way he can make money at the minute. And we go through this little period where we see the the rise up to kind of the middle of the film when we really see the push of the rise when he meets Bogart again. But prior to that, he's he's trying to get um, enough um, materials to be able to produce his own kind of um, bootlegged um, alcohol and and sell it in the back of taxi cabs and sell it to the speakeasy place called um, oh it's the same as the character isn't it it's uh, Panama's yeah and and just make amounts amounts of profit. And eventually he starts bringing in other people. So he kind of starts with Danny, and he starts with Lloyd, who's another one of the soldiers who was on the front lines um, with George. And he starts bringing these people in to help. And the it, it just starts expanding and growing. Uh, what I like about the, this period is it's got the News on the March sequences. I always refer to them, I know they're montages, but I always refer to them like that because of Citizen Kane. That's kind yeah. of, you know... The staple of that process. Newsreel, sort of. The new, yeah, and the the use of wipes and crossfades and dissolves. It's all very, very typical of that type of genre film of that era. But I, I like the speed of it. There's too many of them. I'll definitely say that. There's way too yeah. many because you get to a point where it, it's like it three minutes of film. With the pacing of the film a little bit. It does. It it even even in moments when you've got nice kind of um, nicely structured scenes, suddenly it'll kick into a news on the march uh, showreel, and you're like, whoa, narrative's passed. Time's passed, great. Although later on, they do use a really interesting technique where they're showing kind of the, it's the, the stock market crash, Black Tuesday. Yeah. And they're showing the um, the crumbling of the building almost, but they're using not a subtle dissolve, but a dissolve that almost looks like the building is crumbling, which for the time is quite an interesting and unique way of doing something like that visually. Right. I did not notice that. It's 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 one of the very very last news on the mark sequences. I think that's that's why. Right. And the film is almost two hours long, but yeah, it's it's closish to the end. So so then we have we have his rise. We have him establish this empire. He decides he would he's going to make his own from now on. Gets rid of the suppliers which are overcharging him, and then starts realizing that he needs better quality stuff to compete and make even more money. And that's where he goes and tries yeah, to. Yeah, he, he, he goes into him. He cuts off his suppliers, but he starts to make his own alcohol, basically. Yeah, yeah, his in a bath distillery. to begin with yeah. as well. Yeah, And he starts realising he needs better quality stuff to really make money, to really compete. So he goes to meet uh, another gangster called Nick Brown. And Nick Brown is the head honcho who has all these suppliers and is able to get the materials that he needs to kick his bootlegging up to the next gear. And then the film becomes proper gangstery, I guess. So first of all, there's little relationships that happen. We've got Panama, who never throughout the film quite manages to tell Eddie how she actually feels. And that's played out in the very final scene with one of her lines. Um, I don't know. You know, what, what, what's he to you? I, I, don't, I don't really know. I don't really know. And he, as opposed to that, is actually in love with um, Gene Sherman. This um, up-and-coming performer, starlet who sings at the speakeasies, and he falls completely in love with her. Yeah, and the and... funny like, uh, sort of uh, tidbit about that relationship is that it starts off they start off as pen pals during the war, yeah. where yeah. they corresponded together, and she had enclosed a photo that was a little misleading, uh, that made yeah. led him to think <laughs> that she was a lot older than she was, because she's actually just a high school girl at the time. And he goes yeah. to see her when he comes home, 
and realizes that she's just a young girl. Uh, and then he sees her later as a dancer and then falls in love with her. Yeah, and regales her with everything he can after that, tries to win her affections, and nothing really um, works out. And then eventually she falls for Lloyd, one of his gang members. And this is where we start seeing the slight unraveling of what we'd seen in almost every gangster film, where Eddie starts um, seeing betrayal. He starts um, yeah, He becomes he, a little too full of himself as well. Um, yeah, very, very, it's very much like Scarface, yeah. you know, becoming that, that, that um, impresario of the gangster world, start believing well, you know, your own pomp and your own hype. You know, the film that was continually in my, in my mind throughout it was um, Sergio Leone's... Uh, once Upon a Time in America. Oh, okay. Uh, which sort of also has the same similar conflict between De Niro's character and, and James Woods' character that, that, that occurs, that rift that occurs between um, uh, George and uh, and Eddie. Yeah. In, the, in this one. Um, they, they were very sort of similar to me, um, from, though it's been a long time since I saw Once Upon a Time in America as well. Yeah, it has been for me as well. Great film, though. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic between those characters, and it's it's quite. Before we get to that bit, I guess because it'll involve um, George. So at, at this point, he's really stepped up his game, Eddie. He he's decided he's going to take on Nick. He's going to steal his supply. He's going to fund his own, you know, empire building, and he ends up on a ship, a coast guard ship, sailing to where this supply ship is coming into harbor. And he, he he gets on there. He takes over the ship. Um, lots of firepower. The fights hold up relatively well, I think. Not not amazingly, but relatively well for a. Film I think that so one well. does, but but some of them don't. Um, <coughs> I think the gunfights aren't bad though. I don't know. I I feel like they are, especially because they're sort of again they're sort of neutered by the fact that no one really is sort of all that impacted by getting shot. Um, yeah, but you still see, even in that era, kind of the, the bullet shots coming off the bits of wood. It's like at least tactile effects were used. I think part of the problem um, back then was the camera movements. So bloody difficult to do because cameras were so huge. So, yeah. you know, having to set up scenes and get those kind of things to, to be more kinetic in the way it moved is going to be really, really difficult. But yeah, so he, he, he takes up the ship and lo and behold, there's George working for Nick, protecting all this stuff. And so after a bit of a chat, they strike up a 50-50 partnership, which isn't really 50-50. It's more on Eddie's side, which becomes a bit of a bugbear later on for George. But after that, that's when things really take off. And we see the proper rise, you know, the, into the into the riches um, part of the film. And Bogart, man, some of his lines are just... Like later on when they're sat at the table, he just very bluntly says, you know she's uh, into Lloyd, don't you? And he's... Raises his fist, calm down, calm down. Panama's there, just calm down. And lo and behold, he, there's nothing hidden with him particularly. He's just straight up says what he's got to say. Uh, it's quite a unique character for Bogart because he, Bogart, you know, in my opinion, is a far better actor than Cagney. But at that time, Cagney was the more famous. He was the one with the absolute pomp at that time. And Cagney, uh, sorry, um, Bogart was very well known, but then he would later go on to do some really important films, really big films. But their dynamic, I think, works quite well. And as the film progresses further and further and we see that that rise become a decline, that's when I see think you see the better performances from Cagney. There's a bit where he's, he, 
the, the, so by now Lloyd is um, is with Gene and they've been kind of behind his back a little bit, Eddie's back, and they decide, right, we've got to go and tell him. So they, they decide they're going to walk in and they're going to tell him. They've been trying for a little bit. And he comes out and you think he's going to attack them. And he almost does. He punches him once, I think, Lloyd. And yeah, then he, he like, and then he stops. And he just looks at them and says, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. And just walks in. So there's a bit more depth to some of these characters. I think the writing's relatively good. Yeah, I found nothing like troublesome or annoying about the writing at all. Like I, like I, like I said, I don't really have any serious points of criticism to level at the film, which is part of why it annoys me so much that I couldn't really engage with it because I should mm. be able to engage with it. It is on all levels really a well-crafted film. It just did not really connect with me. Um, I think maybe the central character in in terms of draw, like Public Enemy, Public Public Enemy, sorry. Wonderful film. And I think I felt a bit more driven when I was watching that than I do with Roaring Twenties. Roaring Twenties is a good example of what you would show somebody to show an atypical 1930s gangster film with every component that should be in a 1930s gangster film. Um, whereas variations like Angels with Dirty Faces has got more pathos. Little Caesar, the, the rise and fall is far more clear. You know, Edward G. Robinson... Yeah. So I don't know. It feels like an amalgamation of all the 1930s gangster films that have come before it. It's certainly an, an homage to spark, them. Maybe. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Maybe just lacking that spark that perhaps some of the other ones do have. Yeah, I've, I mean, maybe it was a lot of the newsreel footage which sort of helped disconnect it a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just really weird for me um, that I couldn't... Uh, but as you said, if, if it's breaking up the pace, and so you, if you're even started to get invested in, in certain situations or characters, and then you're quite abruptly sometimes, you know, chucked into a crossfade and boom for a minute, two I mean, minutes, it's, you've got... It's it's a similar issue to what a lot of biopics suffer from, these these time skips. Um, mm. They sort of skip over a lot of stuff uh, for the sake, because they basically have to, given that they're biographical, um, and have yeah, to cover yeah. a, a wider span of time. Uh, and, this, this, and this film has to cover like 15 years from like 1918 to, to 43. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk about, um, not at the very end, but the, the way it kind of the, it develops. So by this time, Prohibition, um, Roosevelt has, has been voted into power. One of his big campaign promises at the time was to get rid of Prohibition. So Prohibition's dead. Um, Eddie has no money left, really. The stock market is, is crashing. And... His once, you know, once wonderful business empire has fallen to tatters, and he's got nothing left. Yeah, he goes. Actually, it's worth mentioning that um, on the day of the stock market crash, uh, he has to cover his losses, and he has to scrounge up money really, mm. really quickly, and he finds it impossible. So he goes to George and asks him for a loan, and George sort of rebuffs him, and then Eddie offers to sell him his cap company, which is his basically his legitimate uh, front for his yeah. illicit business. Um, and he said, offers to sell him, I think, a quarter of the business for, for $200,000. 200 grand for a quarter, yeah. 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 And uh, George rebuffs him and says, no, I'm not interested in order, owning a quarter of anything. Um, but I'll tell you what, I'll give you 250 for the whole thing. And um, just... And I'll weeks, leave you weeks, one cab, Just Eddie. Just weeks earlier, Eddie had a... Two million dollar offer for for the whole company, um, and now he has to sort of 
take the 250000 because he has no other options. He has to get that money right now to cover his expenses. Um, and uh, and then, um, yeah, George takes over the company and uh, Eddie is basically left with nothing. And he then also finds out that um, Lloyd and Jean have gotten married and have a kid. Yeah. And he doesn't take that particularly well either. So he sort of starts, starts drinking. Yeah. Well, he's really, yeah, he's he's doing the taxi thing and he, he comes across Jean and she wants a lift. And at first he's quite standoffish. He doesn't really want to, he just says yes and, you know, mumbles are on. And then something clicks and they go back to the house and he sees their kid dressed as a cowboy. And I guess he's wondering what could have been, what maybe he thought should have been. Um, poor Panama at that point, though. Poor Panama. Um, and then, yeah, he goes off the rails. He just starts. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a different bar called Flanagan's, I think, that um, Panama's now working at. Um, and he's just getting decimated permanently every night. And then uh, it's Gene who's been... Gene is threatened. As he leaves, Eddie, and drives away over taxi a bit later on, two of the henchmen of George come and threaten um, Gene... And Lloyd, because Lloyd is now a prosecutor, I think it is. Yeah, he's a DA. DA. He's a district attorney. And and he's got stuff that he's going to have to um, um, do with George. And George doesn't want that. He's now the kingpin of this empire that he's um, kind of bought and semi-stolen off Eddie. And that's when we see her try and find him. Gene desperately wants to try and find Eddie to help, to get Eddie to protect them, really. Yeah. Because he knows more about George than anybody else. <clears throat> and that whole final kind of crazy fall he goes through is a little bit of a redemption arc. The fact that he does protect Gene, he does go after George, he goes to it straight up to his house, pretends he's there to, to plea for him, when in fact he's got a gun, he knows what he's doing. He kills George um, and most of the henchmen, quite frankly, uh, but then he's chased through the streets. And as he's chased through the streets, he's also shot a few times. And then we arrive at that really iconic ending that most people who know gangster films will probably know. Um, Panama is chasing him down the street. And eventually, he stumbles across a church sign and slowly moves across the steps and falls um, um, on this snowy kind of church um, steps as Panama runs in and sits with him as he dies. And this cop just comes over and asks a couple of questions like, who is he? Um, he used to be a big shot. He used to be a big shot. Um, what was he to you? I, I don't really know. And then that's it. You know, it's, uh, I guess it's supposed to be a little bit reminiscent of the Valentine's Day Massacre. A little bit. No, Death on the Steps. But really iconic moment. And I think that as a cohesive whole, <clears throat> most parts work really well. But as you said, there's not really a spark anywhere. A few characters are pretty cool. Yeah, I've. I mean, I, you you talked about how you you enjoyed some of the shootouts. I thought that the final shootout was really sort of hammy. Um, with well, the way he falls, he might have done a pirouette and then span down and hit the steps. Yeah, no, not just that, but I mean, after when he fights him his way out of of, of the house um, and kills a couple of um, of henchmen along the way, it just yeah, the the way that I didn't think that was particularly effective but what was effective was when he has the gun on george and george suddenly becomes an basically an entirely different character he's oh all, you can like you throughout can he's been the guy in control the guy mm. 
supremely always supremely confident um never afraid uh fearless and all of a sudden when eddie has his point gun pointed at him he becomes basically a trembling wreck uh yeah which was really interesting um and i think bogart played that really well well we have that moment don't we in the the storehouse a little bit earlier when they're stealing from nick and one of the security guards turns out to have been their sergeant um during the war and he's just he just straight up cold as you like uh just shoots him dead and even eddie is like why what are you doing but that uh but that's the scene again i that that was sort of neutered for me because the way it's shot is it basically just shows bogart uh standing with and pointing his gun downward yeah it doesn't really sh- it gives you one show a shot of the sergeant the moment bogart recognizes him that he was their sergeant during world war 1 and that he'd basically disrespected bogart by yeah. giving orders to him and disciplining him um or george i should say uh, the character uh and then then uh they cut from from George to Eddie, and then there's the gunshot. You don't even yeah. you don't see the gunfire. You don't see the impact. You don't see uh, the sergeant's dead body. It just cuts back to um to George from cuts to Eddie. There's the gunshot. Cuts back to to George, and I thought that really sort of neutered the impact of of the murder. Um, I would imagine a lot of that would have been um, to do with the censorship at the time. Oh, uh, I I don't yeah. think there's any doubt what you can and what you can't show yeah. of course anytime you've got a close-up shot and you've got this kind of violence on screen i mean already warner brothers who well best known for the gangster films at that time they were the studio um had all kinds of problems because the gangster film was seen as comic books were later as gang movies were later as you know just one of those cultural things which is affecting society and making it worse so yeah you can understand why a lot of those elements had to be neutered simply to get around the senses to make sure the film was made. But yeah. it does hamper some elements. It doesn't, doesn't, you know, if you're watching a Godfather, the shock of some of those scenes and the visceral nature of them and how they work and happen in front of you is affects you as a, as a viewer. Whereas yeah. many of these are so neutered or so hidden, also theatrical in mean, the way people fall and stuff. But yeah, you don't really get that sense of impact, I don't think. Yeah. And I mean, you you talked about the characters. Um, that is actually something I would, I would like to praise. Is I thought like Panama was probably my favorite character in the film. I'd agree. And with that. I think actually one one uh, filming one film technique that was really effective I thought was that they have in the scenes where Eddie and and pa- and uh, Panama sit together, they frequently have cuts to their hands and the way they sort of hold hands. And I think. There's not a whole lot of sort of uh, verbal acknowledgement of their relationship between them, mm. but I think those those shots of just the way their hands interact with each other, uh, they really re- reveal a lot of the intimacy of their relationship. Um, even though it isn't like physically, romantically intimate, it is like extremely intimate, and I think that really sort of brings that home, that that point home really effectively. Well, yeah, and you've got the different versions, this motif that kind of appears at various parts in the film with those hands. So the one that stands out, the two that stand out to me, the one that stands out initially is the one where he sat about to watch the performance of Jean. Yeah. He's clearly in love with her. And his hand, he, he puts his hand, first of all, on top of Panama's. And she doesn't, she looks quite confused. She doesn't really know how to feel or what to do. So then she almost puts her other hand down 
but then he's clearly smitten by watching Jean sing, so he she doesn't really know what to think or what to do. And then later on in the bar, when Eddie by this point has been blathering on about Jean and her kid and Lloyd for about a week, she says, um, it's more forceful, it's more like... I'm in charge a bit now because this guy needs my help. He needs me, I think. You know, that's why she's always there. She loves him, but she never says it. So you have this um, kind of unrequited love, this subtle relationship throughout. And I definitely agree that Panama, I think, is the strongest character in the cast. I also felt like, I don't know if this was, if Priscilla Lane was the one who actually sung uh, the nightclub songs, but I felt like they were a little bit lacking. I mean, they weren't bad. But but the way she, she sang, like, It Had to Be You, uh, wasn't really sultry at all to me. Uh, and that no, song no. has to sort of be delivered in a sultry way. Um, Again, I mean, that that could have been the censors, but I've seen gangster films prior to that, which have got... I mean, the, this this was the period of Mae West, so I, I don't think Well, so. yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, yeah. Oomph, pizzazz, and spark. I think is what this film is perhaps missing. If you want a film which tells you about prohibition, tells you about that period, you know, the black market crash, um, um, the, the literal roaring 20s, as it were, and kind of what took place in that era, it's a good film to watch. But I don't, it's not a film that's gonna, only a few parts of it really have ever stuck with me. Um, and rewatching it again has not made me think any other parts are going to stick with me. Right. For that long. It's a. If I was to put a gangster film in a box from the 1930s, it would be this one. Because it ticks all the boxes, to some extent. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like like I said, it's really well-crafted. Uh, I I struggle to, to level any particular criticism at it. Um, it's really well-made. Uh, it's, it's, it's well-shot. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's a good film. Yeah, it's got some good sequences, it's got some nice acting, it's got a decent rise and fall, and it really epitomises that era in 1930s, kind of 1920s gangster America. Right, so folks, for anyone who's interested in that era and uh, wants to have a, a bit of a look at a very good gangster film, but perhaps not, uh, not one that will grab you and keep you afterwards, give it a watch. You've also got plenty of others if you're into that era, like I've mentioned already, Little Caesar, um, Public Enemies, Angels with Dirty Faces, a whole plethora of really, really interesting films. Right then, Mr. Silver, what shall we be watching next week? Uh, I think we've actually come now to my favourite film of all time, oh. which is uh, The Coen Brothers' Miller's Crossing, which is another gangster film, so we're staying in that genre for now. <laughs> uh but yeah, certainly has probably the best script I've ever come across. Um, an incredibly dense Wonderful film. Wonderful cast. Incredibly well. dense film. Uh, mm, so yeah. it requires you to pay attention and it requires multiple viewings as well to really sort of catch all the nuances of... Because there's so much in that film that takes place off camera and is just mentioned offhand by mm. other characters. Um, that it's, it can be a really difficult film to... To follow and it was a film that I actually I didn't like all that much on my first viewing the first time I saw it but then I saw it a second time and it just enraptured me and it's uh, it gets better every time I watch it I actually feel that way about a couple of Cohen films um, Barton Fink was another one I didn't really click with when it first came out and yeah. then after watching it two or three times I, I was like yeah I, I really do like this so yeah I'll be watching it in the next couple of days and I'll be watching it just before we do the podcast <laughs> I think 
uh, because I've only seen it maybe two or three times. Right. And we're probably looking at the last time I saw it was the early 2000s, maybe. For me, whenever anyone says Coens, it's like, right, Big Lebowski, put it on. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but yeah, yeah really that's definitely another to... classic. Oh, most of the uh, most of those films by the Coens are really great, really great. Hudsucker Proxy is one of their weakest by for a lot of people, but I love it. Oh, I, I adore Just, it. I adore it. Yeah. Uh, you know, really, for kids. Yeah, for kids. <laughs> right, well, thank you so much for watching. Talk to us in the comments about the films that we've chosen, the kind of things that you would like to uh, to discuss with us. That's what they're here for. We're film guys. Talk, yeah, talk to us about absolutely. films. Um, come and check us on uh, on Twitter. We're always posting our stuff there. We've got a Facebook page. Come and check us out there. Uh, this has been The Last Edit. Thank you very much for watching. And take See care. See you again soon.